Restoration After Abuse on this edition of Truth and Love. I'm Heath Lambert, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions for the problems that people face. So, Amy, we're going to talk about domestic violence today. It is a really, really serious topic for us to address. And it's such a serious topic because the pain is so profound and also because the experience of the difficulty is so wide ranging. So there are statistics that report that anywhere from 25 to 33% of women will be victimized physically by the male significant other in their life. Maybe that's a husband, maybe that's a boyfriend. The one thing we know about those statistics is that they underestimate the problem because domestic violence is one of the most underreported problems that exists. And also those statistics only account for women. They don't account for men who are being abused by their wives, and that's a problem. And they don't account for kids who are being abused. Uh, So the problem of domestic violence is massive, and we can't talk about it in one brief podcast. But we need to talk about this issue at least as it relates to women because it's such a problem and because I think the church is really confused about how to handle this issue. Well, what would you say that this confusion looks like in the church? So I think that there are two extremes that it is easy for Christians to stake out. I think one extreme that's popular in the culture that it's easy for the church to sort of parrot is the extreme that uh, when we hear that a woman has been abused by her husband, we give her counsel that she should never, ever return home. Like, so we say once an abuser, always abuser. If he hits you once, he'll hit you twice, those kinds of things. Uh, Abusers don't change. And so you can never go back because it's never going to be safe. And, And I understand the instinct that would lead to someone saying that they care for women. They don't want them to get hurt. They are aware that research shows that uh, there is a high rate of repeat offense for people who are guilty of abuse. The, the, the problem with that from a biblical perspective is Romans 8, 9 to 11. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is a a promise that all of those who trust in Jesus have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them, and that the same spirit that brought Jesus back to life is going to change them. And so in our good desire to want to honor important research that is true and indicates that this is a a problem that's difficult to change, and in our important desire to want to protect women, we cannot overlook the good news of Jesus Christ, which says that 
anybody can change. That's not a statement uh, that weakens our response to abuse. It's a statement that magnifies the good news of what Jesus came to do. So when the Spirit is dwelling in a person, they can be different. And we always want, because of a desire to honor Jesus, to point out that reality. And so we don't want to say you can never return because things are never going to be the same because if he hit you once, he'll hit you twice. That's one extreme. Another extreme when Christians hear that a woman has been abused is they say, uh, go home immediately. You know, you got to trust the Lord. Uh, You've got to submit to your husband. Um, And so you're going to have to just go and pray and trust the Lord. That is reckless advice. It takes principles that are true that you should submit to your husband and that you need to trust the sovereign care of the Lord. But it takes out a whole other part of the biblical equation. And one part of that is what we read about in Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4. It says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. A passage that's like that is Proverbs 24, verses 11 to 12. It says, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? So this is the Bible commanding believers that we have to protect weak people. We have to protect people who are in harm's way. And so I think Christians have confused and dangerous and harmful responses when they say you can never go home because he's never going to change and you must go home right now because you got to trust the Lord. The Bible corrects both of those confused extremes. So with these two extremes, how can we help her know what to do? Yeah, that's where all the action is because we want to avoid the extremes, but uh, how do you know when... It's right in a particular situation to go back. I think there are, I think the tensions are when we're trying to make this decision is as Christians, we want to aim for restoration. So this is 2 Corinthians 13, 11, where we're commanded to aim for restoration. Christians always should be interested in pursuing restoration and reconciliation and in having our relationships be restored. But the other side of that is we should never send a woman or anybody into a situation that we know to be or suspect is unsafe. And so that's the tension. We want to aim for restoration. We want to believe that this abusive man can change and their marriage can be restored. But we also need to be sure that we're doing what we can do to keep this woman safe. And so that is the tension. And I think the way you resolve it is with a couple of different things. Um, One is violent men have to be separated from their wives and their families for a season in order to establish trust. There has to be some kind of separation here. Usually that's going to mean the people in the church, um, if it's possible, 
uh, removing him from the home, giving him a place to stay so that the wife and kids can operate uh, in their home in as uninterrupted a way as possible. Um, if that's not possible, if you've got a very violent man who's not listening to reason, then you might have to have the wife and her kids come stay with a family in the church or, or with a family member or someplace else safe. But there has to be some separation there so that we can figure out what's going on, so that we can establish trust. In the early stages of dealing with this, one of the principles that I've observed is that a husband only sees his wife during times of intense counseling. So, um, you, uh, you know, you're out, you're staying somewhere else. You're staying with a friend, you're in an apartment or your family is out staying someplace else. And the time you're with your wife is when you're meeting for counseling or, or to work on the problems. And that should be, you should have a situation where you're getting intensive counseling, certainly in the early weeks where two, three times a week, if you can, you're meeting together to deal with the urgent issues that have come from this revelation of abuse. Um, slowly, um, over time, you can begin to increase the amount of supervised time that a couple spends together. So this could be like uh, saying, hey, we will be together, but we'll go out with some couple friends of ours that know about the problem, that are working with us, Some uh, maybe a Christian couple that's going to come with us to the park and our kids can play while we sit and talk. Um, and then you can, after that's gone on for a while and you are seeing how that's going and we're making progress, then you can slowly increase the amount of unsupervised time. So this would be where uh, a husband takes his wife on a date. Uh, they go out to dinner, they go to do something fun together, and they're they're alone, but they're alone in public and they're alone for a shorter amount of time so that we can continue to evaluate this kind of thing. Eventually, you want to slowly begin to reestablish the couple in the same house. And I say slowly you want to do that. That would start with maybe the husband comes home from work, has dinner, helps put the kids to bed, but then goes and stays where he's been staying for a while. Slowly establish them in the house. Then maybe he spends the weekend and we're just establishing that, hey, this seems like it's going well. Through all of that, we're watching two things. We're watching one, the comfort level of the wife. She knows this guy. She's been around, she knows him better than anybody else. And if she is saying, um, I feel really good about this. I think he's different. Then that really is a judgment that matters. And on the other hand, if she's saying something's not right, he's acting strangely, then that is a judgment that really matters as well. So we're watching her response and paying attention to that. And then the other thing we're watching are signs of repentance from him. So, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 11 tells us what to look for in somebody who is repentant. It says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. The, the point there is to give some indicators of what it looks like when someone who is guilty of sin is really turning at the level of their heart from that sin. And the indicators are right there. And so we want to be as Christians watching um, this man to see, is he demonstrating these marks of repentance or is he not? And if he's not, we have a problem. But if he is, we can start to feel good about these slow, steady steps towards restoration but also keeping this woman safe in the midst of that process.
how should a wife know when she should call the police or how should a church know when they should get involved with the police? First of all, we have to say the involvement of law enforcement in these matters is completely appropriate uh, because we're told in Romans 13, 4, that God has established the state to enforce law and order. So, mm-hmm. so it's biblical to look for help from the governing authorities. When a man abuses his wife, he not only sins against God and sins against her, he commits a crime against the state. And so it's right that the state would be involved through law enforcement. Uh, A woman should call the police uh, whenever she feels in danger. If her husband has hit her, she should call the police. There's actually a research study that was done several years ago that indicates that when a woman called the police the very first time her husband ever perpetrated an act of violence against her, it reduced the number of repeat offenses by 80%. So that just means that it helps to call the police. People who are helping this woman, people in her church, for example, if they have been brought into her confidence, um, they should also feel comfortable to call the police, um, even if she asks you not to. If you are concerned for her safety, even if she asks you not to, you should call the police because you have to think about she might not live. She could be mm-hmm. in mortal danger. And so I think you should be honest with her. I think you should say, you know, you've asked me not to call the police. Um, I, I I want to honor your wishes, but I'm so concerned for you, and I'm going to call the police even though you've asked me not to. You should be honest with her. shouldn't go behind her back because that will just erode more of it. She's brought you into her confidence. She already doesn't trust her husband. You don't want her not trusting you. She might be angry with you, but at least you know you're a trustworthy person if you tell her the truth. The question is, how should you know when to call? Um, and, you know, for example, if if your friend is telling you, my husband hit me and he hit me three weeks ago, and that was the first time he's ever hit me in our 15 years of marriage. And I don't feel scared. He says he's never going to do it again. We're getting help. Well, you don't need to pick up the phone and call the police in that, in that situation, probably. But if she says, you know, over the phone through tears, my husband just hit me. I've got a black eye. I'm scared. I don't know what's going to happen next. Well, that's you have to call the police there. In the middle of those two extremes, you're going to have to make a judgment call. And your judgment call, I think, should always be informed by, one, protecting the woman. So err on the side of protection and call the police. And two, following the law. Uh, many states require you to report the, these kinds of crimes to the police. And if you're required to report, then you should obey the law and report it. Uh, so even when you make it a judgment call, you can be informed by a, a love for this woman that would protect her and a submission to the authorities that requires you to make that call if indeed they do. You're listening to Truth and Life, a podcast of ACBC. If you would like more information about our ministry, you can visit us at www.biblicalcounseling.com.